to Cooper Talk. Welcome to Cooper Talk. I'm your host, Steve Cooper. And remember, I'm only as hip as my guest. And I got to tell you something, people. You know, over the years, I've been blessed to interview a lot of great musicians, actors, comics, writers. You know, people I really dig their work. And I'm going to be honest, today, my guest is one of my favorite actors. And I'm, I'm just saying that because he's, he's a great actor. Plus, he was on Miami Vice, and he was represented by the one and only John Kapalos. And my guest is the one, the only, Evan Handler. How you doing, Evan? I'm good. How are you doing? I'm doing good. Now, I want to start off by talking to you about the whole Italy excursion, because I saw you posting on Facebook, and I know you were going, you were over in Italy. What happened? Well, you know, I know your wife, is your wife from Italy? My wife is from Italy. She's from a small town near Bologna. Uh, so uh, we're all Italian citizens, and we travel to Italy every year. Um, my wife and daughter spend four, five, six weeks in Italy in a very in a different small town near the seashore uh, each summer. So, um, uh, you know, we're, we're EU citizens, and so we had an escape patch that most Americans don't have. Uh, uh, you know, if you're, if, if you're hit to that online chatter of, where do I go, how do I get out of here? Right. Um, uh, uh, besides, you, you know, emerging and, and, and still, still, to be, still to be denied authoritarian regimes, um, uh, if I don't know if all listeners will remember, but there was a pandemic uh, not long ago. Um, so uh, we, we felt that the United States wasn't um, uh, taking the right actions to combat the pandemic, um, um, meaning they weren't taking any. Uh, and, we, and we had seen Italy reduce uh, their, their COVID uh, problem from, from you know, tens of thousands of deaths to 200 cases per day in a, in a country of 60 million people um, at a time when the United States was then astonished to find that they were having as many as 50,000 a day, which has since doubled. Uh, so we, we left for Italy. Um, we, had, we had already canceled our summer plans in Italy. We decided we weren't going to go, but we left in mid-August and we arrived and um, it was an eye-opening experience right away. I mean, first we had to quarantine for two weeks. You had, you know, the same kind of mockable bureaucratic issues that you're going to have anywhere, like rules that weren't actually stated. Nobody actually checked up on us when we came to the country. You have to self-declare that you're there. They tell you one thing is going to happen, but other things actually do. We needed not one COVID test, but two, the mandatory quarantine. You know, we had heard reports of police checking on people, um, neighbors reporting people if they left. Uh, uh, we got one phone call about eight days in asking simply about our daughter. How, how is Sophia? Is she okay? But, you know, generally you had heard people actually were getting calls about, do you have food? Do you have somebody to bring you food? Uh, you know, we had heard of this really robust system that clearly had holes. But anyway, we were tested twice. They came to our door to do that. Um, they wanted us to drive into the city of Ravenna, which we felt, uh, uh, you know, undercut the purpose of the 14-day uh, quarantine. <laughs> so we said, well, we don't have a car. So they sent, they sent someone to do it. Um, but when we got out, uh, you know, the beaches were full. Kids were running around in packs of 10 and 12, climbing all over each other. Um, now, you know, everybody was really doing what we had heard they were doing. They were wearing masks. They were lining up outside. I mean, indoors, not outdoors anymore. They were lining up outside shops so that only two or four people would be in a shop at a time. 
They wore their masks in the shops, but a lot of people are wearing them under their noses, under their chins. The waiters and waitresses at the restaurants were wearing them under their noses and under their chins. The people making the pizzas in the kitchen weren't wearing masks at all. So a lot of inconsistency. Uh, all fine until three days before school is scheduled to start when the national uh, edict, not edict, the decree, they kept issuing these decrees. The decree is altered so that students and teachers will no longer be required to wear masks in school all day, only for entering and exiting the building and whenever they stand up from their desk. Because according to the Italian government, the placement of the desks at one meter apart measured mouth to mouth. One meter, for those who aren't up on uh, European systems, is three feet, three inches. So that basically means shoulder to shoulder, essentially. Uh, you know, as close as you'd be in any social situation with no masks. But you're told that it's okay. The children are going to be told not to turn their heads toward each other. You know, and if they get up and move from their desk, they have to put the mask on. But then you found that there were teachers who scolded and mocked the kids who chose to keep their masks on. Uh, my daughter's class was told, I'm not going to have my students looking like a bunch of bandits. You take that mask down right now. Uh, or told, you know, you're, you're distanced, you're distanced. That mask is not doing you any good. Take it off. So um, <laughs> uh, we, we found that unsustainable. Um, and we let our kid go to school for three weeks. And kids started, you know, coming to school with fevers, staying home because of fevers. And, and we finally pulled our kid out of school. And it was just a couple of days until there was a case of COVID at the school. And, and we made plans to wrap it up and come back to uh, the USA. And, you know, lo and behold, I mean, Italy is now, from when we went, there were 200 cases a day. There's now, I think, something like 40,000 cases a day. Um, they are, again, making travel restrictions between regions. Certain regions can't travel outside that region. Um, so we, we, I think we got out of the U.S. when we should have, uh, but we also got out of Italy when we should have. Um, not that anything's better in the U.S., uh, things have maintained pretty well in Los Angeles, which means they still remain only very bad as opposed to horrific. Um, but we have a house here. We have a house and a yard. So we're, we're sealed up. We thought we had an opportunity for our kid to go to school with other kids in school, but we found the behavior was not nearly responsible enough. And, you know, Italy has now closed all its high schools. Uh, junior high schools will be next. And we just said there's no reason to stick around for, for the continued decline. We might as well go back to the United States where they're not handling it well either, but at least we have our uh, 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 little piece of land that we can stay isolated on. It is, you know, it's I'm sure I'm, saying this, I'm sure I'm saying this to an audience of people who might be, you know, going out and doing whatever the hell they want all day long and all night. I don't know. Well, you know, it, it's crazy because I live, I live in New Jersey, and New Jersey's been good from the get-go. And, you know, I wear my mask. We, me, I mean, me and my wife had our wedding anniversary we wanted to fly somewhere. We drove to Watkins Glen, New York. Okay, I just my birthday was last week. I wanted to go out, mm -hmm. but I said, "No, you know what? We'll just we'll pick up something and bring it home." But what amazes me is that New Jersey's been very good for it. But the other day, I was going to pick up shrimp, and I forgot my mask. And I always have a mask in the car. And I walk into the store, and I was wondering why everybody was looking at me like I was the biggest dick in the world. And I went, noticed it, and I went, you know what, that's a good thing. Because at least here in New Jersey, we're on it. And I know, you know, people are, some of them are like, oh, and I'm like, shut up. You know, it's the least thing, it's the least thing you do. It's, it's not that bad. I mean, my wife works out with a mask. She's not complaining. Yeah. 
Yeah, so, you know, I just happen to be, uh, you know, to cut to the heart of it, I'm one of those people, we saw what Italy did, if they'd only maintained it, you know, if they didn't all, you know, go out on vacation and let their kids tromp around together and all the excuses that people make. Well, you all, but you know, you can't control them anyway, or, but they're already playing all day. Why should they, why should they not watch it? They then wear masks at school. They've already played together all summer, all these things. Uh, you know, this virus is containable and it's been done in several places, but they either don't maintain it or here won't do it in the first place. So, uh, uh, yeah, I mean, we're cautious, we're careful and, and, if only everybody would be, it really would go down to very low levels. Now, how are you adapting as in acting? Have you worked on anything yet or are you waiting or, you know, because everyone says different things. People say, read Diamond is on and you said they test them, this, that. Have you been on any, on any sets yet or are you are you anxious to get on the set or are you a little hesitant? Uh, look, when COVID, when it became clear how uh, dramatically COVID was going to impact the industry and, and the whole nation, let's say around March, I, I, my immediate assumption was I'm not, there, I'm not going back on a film set for a year at least. I don't see how anybody's going to be producing anything. So the fact that they actually have ramped up and are producing things now is kind of astonishing to me. Um, I thought it would be more like theaters, which are not going to operate, they're saying now, you know, spring of 2021. I don't think that's going to happen. I mean, it can't happen. It can't happen in a culture that won't control the virus, you know. Um, um, I know uh, the great and wonderful Oz has told people that it's just going to disappear, uh, burn itself out and disappear, but that's, that's, that's not what's going to happen until uh, people make more dramatic and consistent adjustments to their lifestyles and behavior. It's going to be here, and there's not going to be any live theater possible. So they are filming. Um, uh, I know about the protocols. I'm sure, I'm sure they're handled more and less uh, 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 rigidly, uh, rigorously, depending on who's running the show and who wants to save a few bucks and chase some dollars here and chase some dollars there. Um, I think there will be problems. I hope they're not too bad. Uh, in Italy, Mission Impossible was shooting and they moved to Venice to shoot from Rome and, and had six positive tests and had to shut down. Uh, I did get offered uh, to play a lovely scene in a film being made in Venice, Italy. Uh, with Liev Schreiber and Giancarlo Giannini, and and it would have required us staying an extra three to four weeks just to get to the work date. And so I turned it down because I said, I, I don't get a good sense of what's going on here, and I, I think we really did the right thing. Um, I wish them luck. I don't know if they're going to be able to have a successful shoot or not. Uh, so um, what am I saying about work? Uh, look, I just put myself on tape for something this morning. I don't know what I would do. Uh, if somebody offered me uh, a gig right now, um, I would be uh, skeptical. I'd be cautious. But I'm not saying I absolutely wouldn't do it. Now, you've, you've had a great career. Now, what got you into acting? I know you grew up in New York. What started this this wanting to act? Uh, well, I mean, if you go back to those days before I was a, a, a fully formed human, that's what I am now, um, I, I, it was because... You know, I wanted to be a major league baseball player, but, uh, you know, barely grew above five feet and was never very good at it. Um, I, I don't wish that would have been my life now. I don't think I would have really liked hanging around with those guys my whole life. Um, so so I wanted to be an athlete. Uh, uh, I think I probably wanted to be a, a rock and roll star. Uh, I don't think these are unusual things. But sometime around the time when you start to actually make more serious decisions about where am I going to go to college, uh, uh, I found out I was good at this. 
Um, and, and then, you know, as I did it, I started to have more concrete reasons for why it intrigued me and I got into it more and more deeply. You know, I, I grew up on the kind of 1970s era, um, New York, Sidney Lumet, Al Pacino collaboration. So Serpico, Dog Day Afternoon, I went and saw those movies with my dad and was really, really impacted by those movies. And, and the plays that I started to go see when I was a first year student at Juilliard, uh, David Mamet Edmund, um, Michael Weller's plays, Loose Ends, Michael, Michael, uh, um, sorry, Kevin Klein was doing at the time. Uh, you know, I, 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 in, in retrospect, I know now that I became fascinated with the, uh, uh, the, the, the concept and the technique of, uh, showing the world, um, difficult truths that they had rather not recognized packaged in ways that were too t- too entertaining to turn away from uh and and you know those those were my instigating interests as as really back then you know a young um uh, aspiring very dramatic stage actor because uh, i think once upon a time that's that's more what i was uh hired for I and mean, i found out pretty quickly by doing three neil simon plays on broadway that that uh comedy paid better um, and I don't just mean in the amount of dollars. I mean, there, are more, there were more opportunities um, through being funny. Uh, uh, and, and, and maybe that's the way people saw me more as well. But I think, I think once upon a time, I was kind of uh, seen as, as a go-to guy for, for more dramatic purposes. Now, your transition, I know you went to Juilliard, as you said. Did you leave after two years? Uh, I did. I left toward the end of the second year. I mean, I left twice. Uh, uh, I, I was cast, I was cast over the, I had already, I had already, I, I did, I did the, the now demonstrably, uh, 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 societally unfair, unpaid internship when I was 17 years old. Um, I would, did an unpaid internship at a major off-Broadway theater in New York. So I, I filed all their scripts. I made all the casting calls, I read with everybody who auditioned, and they allowed me to audition for their two plays that season, and they cast me. And I got my first agent, and I started going to auditions when I was 17 or 18. Uh, I had a year off between high school and college. I I graduated high school in three years. Um, I was a good student, but I hated where I was. I wanted to get out of there. Uh, So I put all all the credits together and got out of high school with, with a minimal high school degree. And I remember the kids saying, you don't want to do your senior year, you, you, get, you get two free periods. And I, I just looked at them like, I mean, I couldn't believe what was being said to me. I said, you, you know, I'm going to have all free periods. <laughs> you know, let me out of here. But I had a really, a really ironic, you know, uh, 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 teenagedom. I lived, I lived one hour drive, 40 miles from, from midtown Manhattan. My dad was a commuter. A lot of the people that I went to junior and senior high school with had never been to Manhattan, had no desire to go to Manhattan. Uh, 30 minutes north, there was an active clam. Uh, uh, and, and the heralded people at the high school were the football players and the cheerleaders. And I'm this guy who had a sense that, you know, there's something better for me out there. You know, there's a, you know here's this tiny, tiny burg and I'm not appreciated. And if I could just, if I could get into that middle of that giant city, I will be appreciated. And you know, usually you think you want to be a big fish in a small pond. And I knew that I needed to get to the very big pond, the biggest pond. But the biggest pond is where I would actually be of value. And 
lo and behold, I moved to Manhattan and, and was uh, uh, cast in these two off-Broadway plays, one of which became a hit and was moved, moved to Broadway. Uh, and I was confronted with the choice of, do I move to Broadway with this show at 18 years old? Or I had done my college auditions in the meantime. Do I leave and, and go to Juilliard to learn how to do what I was already doing? Um, and half the cast was outraged, saying, you, you do not leave a hit show to go learn to do what you're already doing. And the other half were, you know, you give up this opportunity. There's going to be more. Go get your training. So I went to Juilliard. Uh, but I continued to do some auditions on the side, which at least back then, I don't know that the whole thing of all the schools was you're either here or you're there. You don't, you don't do auditions. You don't work. Um, and I got cast in the film taps. Um, but there was a SAG strike. This must've been 1979 or 80. I don't know what year the strike was. So the film was put on hold. So I had, I had withdrawn from school, and I said, well, actually, I'd like to come back <laughs> for the second year. And I started the second year, and toward the spring, toward, toward, toward the, the, the better part of the second year, both The Chosen and Taps were rescheduled, and, and I bowed out again. And I went and I made those two movies. You know, I guess The Chosen I did during the summer uh, before, I think, and then Taps I did. I left school to do Taps. You know, it's funny, Taps, you know, I, I growing up 10 minutes from Philadelphia, it was shot up in Valley Forge, I believe. And, you know, that was yes, a big exactly, thing, like, yeah. everyone's like, hey, there's a movie, because, you know, we, we all were into Philly, went to Philly all the time. And, you know, a lot of people don't talk about Taps, but there was so much young talent in that, that you've all had sustained careers. And it's really amazing, like, when you look back, you know, at the IMDb and you see who was in it, you're like, holy crap, everyone has done well. Uh, well, yeah, I mean, it, but it, it was quite a thing at the time. It's just, um, it was one of the first, I don't know if it was the first, but it was one of the very first films to have all teenage, uh, leads. Um, you know, it was, it was after that film, that the Brat Pack phrase came into being from, you know, Risky Business and Beyond, which was, you know, Tom's movie, but we all drove to Manhattan and auditioned for Risky Business. Uh, those were the days when I read for those lead roles. I mean, I, sh I should have read for Curtis Armstrong's role in Risky Business, but I read for Tom's role. I was reading for the roles that Tom was getting, that Eric Roberts was getting, that, you know, everything that I wasn't getting, <laughs> Ralph Macchio was getting. You know, it, it took a while for me to, uh, uh, I, I was giving, being given, getting, given a shot at sort of being a leading man in an era when guys like me weren't really leading men yet. So, so, so then I settled into, you know, my character actordom, and in decades since, you have Michael Sarah's and, and uh, uh, Seth Rogen's and, and, and whatever. Uh, but, um, so anyway, Taps was a, a huge box office thing at the time. And, and yeah, I mean, you know, Tim, Tim, Tim arrived having just won an Academy Award. Uh, so he was the big star. Um, Sean, nobody knew about, but uh, has had uh, an extraordinary uh, and deserved career since. Um, Tom was not originally cast in the role that he played in the movie. Tom had a much smaller role, and there was a young guy from Louisville, Kentucky, who was cast as that character of Sean. Was it Sean or David Sean? I don't remember. Um, um, and, you know, that other guy was having a, a, a hard time and, and was not able to reveal his, I think he would have been great in the role, personally. Um, but he was not able to reveal himself so easily and reveal uh, what he might have brought to it. 
and Tom Cruise was, uh, you know, very, very noticeable and and ostentatious about his ambition and his willingness to do anything asked of him. You know, at the time when I was 19 or 20 years old, I remember my, my, my thought about Tom Cruise was, this is a guy who if you told him to put your head down and run into that wall as hard as you possibly can, that's exactly what Tom would have done. And that was noticed by the producers and the director, and they just flipped the parts, and they gave Tom the lead role, and, and, and the other guy had about four lines after that. Oh, man. And uh, <laughs> the rest is they say history. But I don't think anybody really predicted Tom's success in that way in spite of that. Um, uh, he was just an extremely um, impressionable and, and um, uh, 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 over-the-top gung-ho tell me what to do and I'll do it kind of guy. Now, you do the movie and now you're young and you have some success. What are you looking at for the future of your career? Are you thinking, you know, I want to I want to go back to stage. This is what I'm doing or I want to do this or are you just like I just want to work and have fun. What what was your what was your plan then? Uh, you know, um, the, the I, I was about to say something general about actors. I guess I can only speak about myself. You know, my life and my career, as it has proceeded, has been a, a much less smooth, herky-jerky path than it might appear to others, or than it even looks to me in retrospect. You know, I can look back and paint for myself an incredibly smooth, uh, upward upward path of, 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 all, of all beautiful scenery. Um, the fact is, you know, I did a gig like Taps, and I went back to, you know, my wine and beer bartending job in a restaurant on St. Mark's Place, a vegetarian restaurant. Um, I got paid what I thought was very well at the time because I had never had any money in my pocket at all when I was 20 years old. So, you know, the fact that I made a thousand bucks a week for 12 weeks seemed unbelievable. Uh, uh, but uh, that's it. I went back to being a guy who auditions and that's generally what's, what's happened for me. Um, I think part of that is that it's just, you know, I've always been, uh, well, I like to think I'm an undervalued commodity in the entertainment industry, but, uh, you know, that's often phrased other, other ways. You know, I don't think it's that I've, you know, I've, I've, I've been a little bit of a, a specialized um, ingredient to people as opposed to somebody who's easy to plug in anywhere just because of the way casting works and the way they want people who are easily identifiable as a type generally. Um, uh, and at the same at the same time, I probably didn't do things with you know the forethought that I didn't have. I mean, I didn't go to Los Angeles and try to be a film actor after Taps. I stayed in New York and did auditions and wound up doing you know other off Broadway and Broadway plays. Uh, so I didn't I didn't make any move to follow anything up in that way. I just lived my life and and and, and the reason that I did this wasn't because it was as carefree as you just said. It was because I fully expected the world to offer riches and 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 opportunities to me in abundance you know i thought at 20 years old i was destined for uh uh, uh the kind of uh accolades and 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 fortunes of bob dylan by the time i was 25 um it took a, a long time for me to realize that um uh not only weren't people going to recognize my genius in that way and that quickly but it, it, it might not possibly exist <laughs> now, what was your years like on on Broadway? I mean, and it's like I know you you didn't you walk off the stage on some production or you, you, I hear different stories. You hear different 
stories. Though. I mean, it's, it's one of the most written about things, so it should, shouldn't, it shouldn't, it shouldn't take that much to clear it up. Um, uh, but you're skipping over my entire. Uh, 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 y- y- I can tell that story, but we'd be skipping over my entire uh, stage career because it, it was, it was, it was. Uh, I had a period, had a period between 1982, 1982 and 1991, uh, when I did uh, seven leading roles in seven Broadway shows over the course of a nine-year period, in spite of uh, having two bouts of leukemia and a bone marrow transplant and losing about four to five of those years. So I was, I was a, 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 you know, a, a, quite a presence you know, on and off Broadway in those days. Um, but yes, the last Broadway play I did in 1991, after, after having come back from two bouts of leukemia and a bone marrow transplant, and after being in the in the original cast of Six Degrees of Separation and moving with that to Broadway, I was uh, at 29 or 30 years old offered my first, my very first lead in a romantic comedy with my name above the title on Broadway to co-star with a, a legendary and legendarily difficult Scottish actor named Nicol Williamson, probably best known for playing Merlin uh, in Excalibur. Um, and it was uh, just a dreadful, dreadful, dreadful experience with a really miserable guy who was who was very good and very charming on stage, but he was a, an extremely, you know, miserable, angry guy who who made uh, life difficult for everyone, and who saw me as a competitor and an enemy. And uh, we opened, and I mean, he quit twice over the course of rehearsals. Um, he stayed away for two and three days at a time. There was talk of replacing him. Um, I, I tried my best to succeed in a situation with two hands tied behind my back. I think in retrospect, the best thing would have been for me to walk away from the situation. But uh, it felt like a huge shock for me. You know, I took it. I got the worst reviews of my career, deservedly so. Um, and and uh, a few weeks into the run... Uh, you know, after after performances in which he berated me in front of the audience and other actors mid-performance, uh, he wouldn't show up for fight rehearsals. There were elaborate sword fights, duels in this. In this, it was a play called "I Hate Hamlet," written by Paul Rudnick. I think it was Paul's first play. If people don't know Paul's name, they should. I mean, he he. he I believe he wrote. Um, was it the film Dave with with uh, uh, Kevin Klein? Am I am I? Did Paul write that? I might be wrong. Or was it In and Out? I'm not. I'm One not of the, yeah, I think it was In and Out. Credit. But but he wrote he wrote Adam's Family's movies. He writes for the New Yorker. He, he's he's a he's a he's a legendary screenwriter and and humorist. Um. So the 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 Act One finale fight happens and there's a pass where I'm supposed to run toward him and aim at his ankle and he's supposed to casually with you know a debonair little flare flick my blade away and and instead i saw that he had his arm drawn all the way back as if to hit a tennis backhand and i thought well what do i do now he's not going to block what i'm supposed to do so i ran past him and as hard as he could he smacked me across the ass with this metal sword uh so i just kept going i mean i went to the door uh of the apartment set uh i told the stage manager i was leaving and i wasn't coming back i went to my dressing room i heard nickel give a speech to the audience in which he, he, he said the young actor has uh, forgotten uh, forgotten his uh, his parries 
and left the stage, which is a very unprofessional thing to do. And, and, uh, and that was that, I thought. Uh, because the next day was calm, and I just told my agent, you know, get me out of the contract, I'm done. Uh, but two days later, I got a call from my father who said, hey, buddy, you okay? Yeah, you know, what's, what's up? He said, well, there's, uh, uh, there's a lot in the news. Have you seen, have you seen, uh, have you seen the times? No. So, so I went to the gem spa newsstand on the corner of St. Mark's Place and, and 2nd Avenue and in the lower, and, uh, the East Village of Manhattan and I'm buying the New York Times and I look down and the New York Post says Broadway across the front and I thought, well, I work on Broadway. Uh, I wonder what that story's about. <laughs> and it says Broadway sword play turns real. Uh, uh, Hamlet, Hamlet actor st- storms off stage after co-star whacks him in butt. And it's my face staring back at me from the New York Post. So I got home, and there were nine messages on the answering machine from I don't know, CBS hard copy, from you know every whatever those outlets were at the time. And I couldn't pick up the phone without call waiting, ringing with another call. And I thought I got to get the fuck out of here. You know where do I go? So I, the, the Mets were playing. So I said I'll go to Shea Stadium. There'll be tens of thousands of people. I'll disappear for the day. And I'm on the subway to Shea Stadium, and everybody's reading the New York Post. So it's my face staring back at me. <laughs> From everybody, it was it was like I was in the fugitive, like I'm the guy on the run, and everybody's seeing my picture, and oh no, and I'm pulling my cap further and further down over my face, and and I go to the baseball game, and I have a nice day, but it continued for weeks and weeks, the stories and publicity. Eight months later, it was you know in the year-end issues of Time and everything, the happenings of the year in the theater was this happened, this happened, and it just never stopped. Um, including when when uh, that nasty son of a bitch died a few years ago, uh, his the, the story and my name were in all his obituaries, which is fine, except that means that when I die, he's going to be in all of mine. <laughs> now I gotta, I want to go backtrack, back to Broadway real quick. Now you you know you're on Broadway, then you found out you had leukemia. What was that like as an actor? You finally had you know, getting those strides and you find out you're sick. I know Charlie Schlater went through leukemia. I know, you know, I know a friend of mine who just went through leukemia. What's that like for a young actor? What are you, what are you looking at in your career? I mean, how do you keep focused that you still can act? Uh, look, I, when I was 24 years old, uh, I was told I had acute myeloid leukemia and it was considered incurable at the time. And the survival rates beyond five years were lower than 25%. So it's sort of, you know, uh, uh, you're the, you know, what did that mean to me as an actor was, was not what was on my mind at the time. Um, uh, I was told essentially my life was over. So uh, did that life include my ambitions as an actor? And the fact that I was only 24 and still hadn't been hailed as a Bob Dylan type genius. I still had a year to go before 25 when I thought it would happen. Um so, uh, uh, you know, I actually, you know, I've written books about this since, so, so I can wax philosophical about it for a long time in all kinds of ways. But even, even the concept of what is a life became strange and distorted to me and, 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 and when you have to actually start to define these things. And, and, you know, that a life is just the sort of composition of, of every dream and hope you've ever had for the future. It's whatever you've experienced, whatever you have now, and all the hopes and dreams you have like that. But I guess that's what your life is, if that's what's going to be snuffed out. And the thoughts of having that snuffed out 
or to realize that your life now actually doesn't include any hopes and dreams for the future any longer. Your life is only what's already happened and what's happening right now. And anything you've ever hoped and dreamed for, forget it. That's not for you. Um, that was what I was dealing with. And yes, my career was part of that, but it certainly wasn't all of it. Um, now, I did manage to uh, uh, have a two-year remission, during which I got back on Broadway in another Neil Simon play. I went back and auditioned, and they hired me to take over for uh, 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 Jonathan Silverman originated the role in Broadway Bound for the character that Matthew Broderick had played and who I took over from in uh, Brighton Beach Memoirs. So, yeah, there I was, back on Broadway working for the same people, uh, uh, for the same playwright, um, when there was a recurrence of the leukemia. Um, uh, I had my suspicions about uh, Neil Simon plays being carcinogenic, um, but I had to, you know, remove myself again and have a much, much more difficult path back with a bone marrow transplant, um, the 1987-88 version of that, which was quite, quite early. Uh, and that really took a year or more um, I won't even say to recover from, but until, you know, you're advised not to go back to work for quite some time. Your, your immune system is essentially destroyed and needs to grow back. Um, and, you know, then the ironic twist to that is, you know, a lot of people think reassess their lives, right? They decide, oh, that was the wrong path. I really want to do this. If my life is so, now that, now that I realize that life is limited, I'm going to, I didn't change anything. I mean, in the hospital, I fantasized I wanted to get out. And I wanted to become a boxer because all I wanted to do was beat the shit out of someone when I when I got out of the hospital. Um, thing is, I didn't want anyone to beat the shit out of me. So 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 I just became an actor again. I got a call one day from my agent saying, you know, do you want to go to an audition? This is a year after disappearing, um, and it was right down the street from my house at the at the New York Shakespeare Fest, Festival, the Public Theater in the East Village. So I went and and I auditioned for uh, the Winter's Tale which was going to star Mandy Patinkin and Chris Reeve and Diane Venora and Alfrey Woodard. And, and I got cast in my first audition back. And I thought, this is the strangest thing. I mean, everybody, you know, who I know and, and the, 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 you know, the cliche about an actor is you have such an insecure work life. And, and I'm living a life where it seems like acting work is the most secure thing about it. And it's even more secure than the likelihood of my existence uh, maintaining. Uh, uh, um, so I went back and I, I started to rehearse that play and there had been a small sliver of medical treatment that had been delayed because my blood counts weren't high enough to allow it to be uh, administered. And that changed over the course of the two weeks of rehearsal and I had to remove myself again from that production in order to do this last bit of treatment. Uh, seemed at that time like, oh, you know, this, he, he, here's the industry where there's going to be a place for me, you know. So you're, you're, you're going to remission, you're Broadway, you know, how, do, how, what was your track to Hollywood and TV? You know, I mean, I know you, you, you seem to be on Broadway, you seem to be enjoying it, you, you seem to, you know, have fun, except when you hit in the ass with a, with a sword, which no one would really enjoy. What was your, what was your foray into Hollywood? Uh, well, um, just before doing I Hate Hamlet, as I said, I was in the original cast of Six Degrees of Separation. And uh, uh, Jim Brooks, the, 
creator, one of the creators and producers of Mary Tyler Moore Show, Taxi, um, some and, and legendary films, you know, um, um, As Good As It Gets, uh, uh, Terms of Endearment. Um, uh, he was casting a new show, a new sitcom. And, you know, I hadn't really worked in television. Like, to me, when I was younger, it was like Scott Baio was a TV actor, you know? So that was like a completely different land that was not looking for somebody like me and was not accepting of somebody like me. Um, the, the, the shows were generally filled with, with what I considered at the time, you know, kind of soap opera-y, good-looking people. And that's what you had to be to be on television. And, and um, But Jim Brooks had seen Six Degrees of Separation, and I didn't know. I went in and I read for them, and they were kind of amazed by the laughs that I got in that show. And, and uh, they hired me to... Uh, it, was at the te- it, was, it was during I Hate Hamlet. They wanted to fly me out to test. They used to do things anyway called chemistry tests. I was going to have a girlfriend on this show. I, it was four sisters. It was called Sibs. And I was going to be the boyfriend of one of the sisters, Jamie Gertz. And they wanted me to read with Jamie. And the producers of I Hate Hamlet, it was Tony season. Tony voters were coming in. They did not, did not give me permission to take off a performance to go to Los Angeles to do through, through the through the TV company made arrangements to go on uh, either Sunday or Monday was our dark day with no show. And so I was going to fly to L.A. in the morning, be picked up, do this 10-minute reading, be driven right back to the airport and fly back the same day to then be there for I Hate Hamlet the next night. And that's what I did. And, and they hired me. So when Nicole Williamson snapped me on the ass and I quit that show, I, I had a TV job to go to. Um, what was it like transitioning? What's that? What was it like transitioning from, you know, now you're in a TV show, you know, you're used to Broadway, you know, you're used to working all the time. Yeah. You yeah, still, yeah. you were sick, you're not, you know, I mean, it, you were, were in remission, so your body probably wouldn't take as much as a beating doing a, show, a TV show, but was it an easy transition for you, sitting there going, oh, it must have been cakewalk for you. No, no, the health, the health issue, the, the health issue was not, as, as you describe it, I mean, I was... I was back, I was well, um, I was traumatized. Uh, uh, you know, I didn't know if I could, I mean, the statistics on bone marrow transplantation were that recurrences of leukemia after that almost never happen after one year to two years. So I was, I was already considered out of the woods for that. Um, I'd already done the whole run of, of six degrees of separation for a year. Uh, and I had done I Hate Hamlet. So, um, that, that wasn't an issue, except that my appearance had been completely altered. I was a guy with a thick head of curly hair, and and I lost my hair, and it never grew back after the, the ultimate treatments. So I had to, you know, venture out into Manhattan and reintroduce myself to anyone who'd ever known me, because they wouldn't recognize me walking down the street. And then when I went to auditions, because I was still playing high school and college students, I had to uh, uh, have... Broadway wig makers make me a wig that I would put on for auditions and then I wouldn't be recognized by the same people that I just reintroduced myself to ball. So I had this really strange um, muddled identity both to myself socially and professionally. Um, Not sure if I should, you know, back then nobody was bald except the skinhead sitting on St. Mark's Place, you know. I don't think Michael Jordan was bald yet. Uh, so it was really quite a statement to walk around as a 
24-year-old guy with a shaved head. Uh, but I but I never became um, the Mike Nichols guy, and most people won't get that reference, I guess, but Mike Nichols wore wigs his whole life. Um, now the secret's out. I said how you always, you know, you always crush your roles, which I, and I, and the movie I still remember seeing, remember seeing you the first time was Ransom. And for me, you stole that show, even though everyone else was in it. When you were laying there talking about drama, I think that was the, the term you said. I mean, it was amazing that I remembered you from that. What was your, what was it like for you working in that movie with such big names, but you had a juicy part and you had a part that, you know, made a difference. That was a great experience. It was very seminal for me in that uh, 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 Scott Rudin was producing it. I knew Scott as a casting director years before, but I didn't know Ron Howard, so I went and I started reading, and the roles I read for were the roles that Liev Schreiber and Donnie Wahlberg played, the two brothers. Um, I don't remember. There were, uh, there were two or three or four different roles I read for over and over again. And, I mean, you went back again and again and again and in those days, you know, everybody read for stuff. So Mary Louise Parker was there. She came in. You know, you're sitting there waiting to read with all whoever. I don't know, Peter Gallagher. Like, all the just the people that you know that you're seeing everywhere. Um, now, and then I got a call, you know, would that Ron would like to use you in the movie. But it's a role that's not really very scripted. It had the name of Miles. But, I mean, there were like two or three or four lines through the whole script. And he was that guy who ran the computer, the phone system for those guys, the drunken guy. But Ron said, listen, I'd like you to play this role, but there's not really very much there. I, would, you, would you find six or seven places to throw something in? And I had never been asked to do that before. I mean, never officially. Uh, you know, it might, it, might have like, it might have happened in a work environment that you wind up ad-libbing things. But I'd never had somebody come to me and say, you know, uh, come to the set every day with stuff that you think you should say. And uh, the screenplay was written by, among others, I think, but it's credited primarily to Richard Wright, a great novelist and screenwriter and, I think, a showrunner now. Um, Richard's great. And Richard actually wrote that speech of, about Mo Drama. Um, uh, but I was given the green light to find six or seven other places that I wanted to throw stuff in. So the stuff about she's scaring the beekeepers out of me, and, and uh, you know, you're not even going to be able to go to your brother's funeral. And these lines that I just threw in and thought, you know, would work. And then when I saw it for the first time, got, you know, incredible huge laugh lines to break the tension of the movie. Uh, a lot of them were what I was invited to bring. And it was incredibly gratifying and, and showed me that that's actually something that I could do. And so later on, when something like Californication came along, which again was created and written by Tom Kapanos. You know, Tom wrote the script along with his uh, uh, writer's room for as long as he had a writer's room. But when I read, you know, you, 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 
I, I was still auditioning and reading for all that stuff. So it meant you do a reading, and if they want to present you to the network, then you go in and you read with the company for all the Showtime executives. And I'm sitting there with, you know, my lines on a piece of paper, but it's not what David was saying, sitting next to me. And it's, this is my test for the network, you know. There's four other guys out there who are waiting to come in and do the same thing. So if David's not going to say what's on the page, neither will I. So David and I did this, you know, kind of great, strange, spooky, weird uh, uh, scene, half of which was on the page and half of which wasn't. And, and that's, uh, uh, you know... Uh, as we did Californication, we worked from the script, but there was certainly license uh, uh, to, to, to pitch and, and, and ad-lib and, 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 and change stuff uh, uh, all per Tom's approval. Um, and I had a, a memory and a history of knowing that, um, you know, this is something that I can do and bring to the table. Now, I want to ask you, how was your audition process for the Three Stooges, because I know Paul Ben Victor said he had the ugliest wig. He got a mo wig made, and he showed up. And what was it? What was your audition process like? And what was it like? You're playing a comedy legend. I mean, the Three Stooges, Larry Fine is, you know, looked up to so many. What was that? What was your process as auditioning for that part? How do you look into playing someone who's just so known? Um, I had just done the TV show. It's like you know which was also like highly anticipated. It was gonna be the first Seinfeld offshoot. Peter Melman, the creator and writer, was one of the prime writers on Seinfeld. And it got a lot of uh, hullabaloo, but never really found enough of an audience for that moment in time. I mean, now the six million people that watch it every week would be a huge audience. But then as they just started to put Who Wants to Be a Millionaire on six nights a week and started realizing they could save money, it, it got lost in, in that crossfire. Uh, and the Three Stooges was as simple as I was given a few pages and I read them in some casting director's office in front of a video camera and it got sent off and and, and they said yeah and, and they sent me a plane ticket to go to Australia um, my suspicion is they had somebody lined up they couldn't get because it was very late I mean, this happened very quickly um, usually you'd have to jump through more hoops that wasn't what it was. I just, I, I read on tape and, and, that, and that was that. Um, now, the character of Larry Fine himself, I think, is, is, is less defined for most people than uh, Curly and Mo. Um, uh, so I think that was part of the script as well, that it wasn't necessarily as, as clearly drawn. And, 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 but me and, and, and Paul Ben Victor and, and uh, Michael Chiklis, and um, there was also a, a terrific actor who played Shep, um, John Kassir. Uh Thank God I thought his name because I blanked on it for a second. Um, uh, we all worked together and, 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 you know, it wasn't so much of an invitation from the director for that one, like with Rod Howard. But there were times when we got together and said, you know, I'm not sure the scene is saying what it needs to say. And, and what if we did this and you did that and I said this and blah, blah, blah. That would actually get us to the next place. So there was some of that that went on. And, and I did what I could, I thought, to, you know, flesh out and, and sharpen the image of, of, of Larry Fine. But I liked doing that kind of, um, you know, real-life figure. Um, especially there because we did the recreations of their routine. So we spent 
endless hours watching those black and white reels and, and practicing with each other and, and being obnoxious in public and bars and whatever, uh, uh, doing that stuff. Um, but I liked that, and, and it was also, you know, it was a little bit of a coup for me because that ABC movie of the week biopic was the equivalent of today's Too Big to Fail or People vs. OJ, where, you know, a select few get to, you know, some, some, <clears throat> somewhat high-profile, recognizable actors get to inhabit these roles. And, and to get welcomed as one of them was, was, was great to me, just professionally, besides getting to do the material that I liked. Um, but, but now that I've done that and Too Big to Fail, People vs. OJ and Fosse Verdon, it's a, it's a niche that I, I personally find very satisfying of, of doing Lloyd Blankfein and Aaron, Aaron, Alan Dershowitz and, and Hal Prince. Um, and, and Larry Fine. What what is it like playing Dershowitz when Dershowitz is still the great, around? The, 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 the great Jews of entertainment and finance, basically. <laughs> what is it like playing Dershowitz? Because, you know, everyone says he's an ego, and you, and that's one punchline in your whole show when they're saying, well, he'll tell you 18 times how good he is. What's it like when you're playing someone who everybody knows who he is, and he's probably got such an ego, and he's probably like, oh, who the hell is this guy playing me? You know, he's probably thinking, I should have Brad Pitt paying me. You know, I'm Alan Dershowitz. Did you, did you meet him during the shooting, or, or what was it like? I'd be surprised if that's what Alan was thinking. Uh, I think, if anything, Alan would be thinking, you know, why isn't there more of me in this show? <laughs> uh, 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 I have really different feelings about Alan now than I did then. Um, we made that series pre-Donald Trump and pre-Alan Dershowitz's uh, really grotesque suck-uppery and, and, and disregard for, for what the Constitution of the United States truly is versus what he's helped Donald Trump to pretend it is. So um, um, I, think, I, think, uh, uh, I think Alan Dershowitz's legal career was debatable in a, in a different way then and was debatable then but in a different way then than it is now. I think uh, there's certainly something to be said for everybody deserves uh, uh, a competent defense. I happen to agree with the lawyers who say, yeah, you're entitled to a competent defense, you're not entitled to mine. Um, Alan, you know, has made his way representing, and is prideful about representing uh, the most despicable um, people accused of the most despicable crimes. Um, there are videos of him speaking very eloquently about these issues from his younger days. Uh, I did seek him out. He was very warm and welcoming. I spent an hour with him in his apartment on the Upper East Side of Manhattan. Um, he was not very animated. You know, he was even then an older guy. He was not the same as the red-haired guy that you were used to seeing from news conferences and stuff. He was out of the public eye because he had not found his meal ticket yet in Donald Trump. Um, and his responses were, it was very, very difficult to get a response from him. It was not something I'd already heard him say on tape in an interview. So it felt like all I was getting was kind of rehearsed, rehashed, prefabricated, pre-decided responses to everything. Um, the only time I was able to knock him off stride at all was when I said, you know, you, you write and have spoken openly about the fact that most criminal defendants are guilty. And that it's a good thing that most criminal defendants are guilty because you wouldn't want to live in a society where most criminal defendants are innocent. That would mean that you're in some kind of fascist society where innocent people are being accused all the time. So, okay, most criminal defendants are guilty. 
you have gotten numerous people, including numerous murderers, uh, not guilty verdicts. Have many of them committed additional crimes or been charged with additional crimes afterward? And he looked down at the floor sadly and said only one. And that would be OJ. Because OJ was in the jail at the time oh, yeah. for, for for the additional crime of, uh, you know, breaking into a hotel room and <laughs> stealing memorabilia. With a gun. Um, so I don't know. That sad little moment was the only real uh, 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 honest thing I felt I got from him. He wanted to reenact for me, you know, the socks and the blood splatter. And I, I had just, I mean, I read that so many times that he didn't need the Alan Dershowitz show. Now, since then, I've communicated with Alan on Twitter you know, because I'm highly critical of him, and every once in a while he takes the bait and responds. But um, I think I think he's given one of the more grotesque displays of uh, uh, contributing to misleading the American people about the illegality of of, of the Trump uh, administration. And you know, I don't have any problem saying that. If people disagree with it, then I think uh, they have troubled perceptions. Exactly. Um, this is a very good answer. Now, I want to ask you also, you know, people recognize, I, I love I love when people talk about stuff like this because a lot of people don't get to hear it. Now, I want to ask you now, you, you, were, you were a recognizable, recognizable actor pretty much, but then when Sex in the City came, how did that change your life? Because everybody watched Sex in the City and then you came on and you were married to the, the sweet girl. Everyone thought her was the sweet one. How, was, that, did, was that an offer or did you have to audition for that? Uh, almost nothing is an offer. Not absolutely nothing, but 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 very little. Uh, so, um, I was a recognizable actor. I had done West Wing. That was another thing that I was I was I was welcomed onto West Wing with a lot of press releases. Me, Connie Britton, and Ron Silver at the same time. But they only used me and Connie three or four times and retained Ron. So it didn't turn into what it seemed like it was going to turn into. Same thing with. Um, People would recognize me. I had been around for a while, but uh, and and I think as I can't again, I can't speak for other actors, but <coughs> I know that since I was 17 years old, 80 percent of the jobs that I did began with "This is going to change your life." This is going to change your life. So uh, uh, I I flew myself out to California again to do pilot season because that's what I tended to do. I got myself a place to stay temporarily, and for the first time, I don't know, I never really knew Los Angeles that well. I always went to West Hollywood and stayed in these, you know, garbagey apartments or long-term hotels. That that's what people did. You get a pilot, you score, you don't, you go home. Um, but for the first time, for whatever reason, I rented a little bungalow in Santa Monica, which I didn't know at all. And it just seemed an incredibly pleasant place to be. Uh, and this was all also right around the time of 9-11 when I had a, a, a bad breakup of, of a, a, an engagement and I just thought, you know, I should just get the hell out of New York. Um, I'll, you know, I'll, I'll get a place in Santa Monica. And for the first time in my life, I moved all my belongings to Santa Monica. I'm 40 years old. Been at this a long time, more than 20 years, more than half my life. Uh, and four days after uh, my stuff arrived in Santa Monica, I got a call if I wanted to fly myself back to New York to audition for Sex in the City. Uh, and of course I did. Um, uh, but the way they handled things there was, uh, 
if there was a role that they thought might be something to stay as a partner for one of the women, they hired you for the last two episodes of one season with their option to pick you up again for the following season, no guarantee. So uh, I flew myself to New York. Uh, I learned, because I had an ex-girlfriend on the writing staff, that there was somebody who was essentially all but cast for this role of Harry Goldenblatt already. Uh, and I went in and I read. And, you know, you take yourself out to uh, an area of Queens that was, you know, um, not... It's, it's warehouses. It's, you know, where the Silver Cup Studios is, is, is in an area that at that time, there's, there's not much around it. It's kind of like broken stretches of, of, of abandoned lots and, and warehouses. And, and they said, they, they immediately said, um, we want you to come back later today to read with Kristen Davis. Uh, uh, and so I, then I would just like walk down into Queens to spend two and a half hours, you know, obsessing and looking at these lines until reading with Kristen. And, and I came back in and I read with Kristen and flew back to Los Angeles and waited. Uh, and when I said, well, what's going on? You know, I was told, well, these things take time. You know, they have to, they, if they like the tape, it has to go to the network. It has to go to the people at HBO. It has to go to, uh, you know, they, they call your past employers. They do whatever. So I think it was, an, I don't know if it was four days or another full week or week and a half. I don't know. But I waited. And, and, and it's one of the few times when I look, when I got that job, I thought this is, this is meaningful. This, this could make a big change in, in, in the way I'm perceived because it's a huge show and, you know, apparently it was going to be a love interest for this woman. And, and, you know, I was 40 years old and I, I couldn't, when I was 30 and did I Hate Hamlet, I'd never been so much as asked to, to kiss a, a woman on stage or screen before at 30. At 40, I couldn't say never, but it, it wasn't, it wasn't, wasn't what, pe what people were throwing my way. Uh, uh, little did I know what was to come in Californication. It's going to be a lot more than kissing. Uh, but also, thankfully, you know, Sex in the City required that I be nude for an entire episode, which I had never done before, and which mortified me. Uh, uh, I did my best to hide my mortification, but it, at least it, 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 it prepared me for what was to come in Californication. But Sex in the City, when I got there, I was very happy to have the job. But I was a guy who was already past 40 years old. I was, you know, like somewhat established, you know, and somewhat jaded. I, I always considered myself to be a guy of a pretty, you know, reasonable, decent attitude. It's not like people had run screaming from me or anything like that. But very, very quickly, uh, it was made clear that I wasn't cutting it for them, and they were taking issue with my attitude in being there. And it really startled me and took me by surprise. And, and, and I re you know, they really wanted, you know, everybody who told me, oh, this is going to change your life, this is going to change your life, they wanted it acknowledged at Sex and the City. <laughs> I mean, they wanted, not acknowledged, not, not being down and giving, you know, thanks on your knees to them, but they, 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 they were taken aback by the fact that I was not kicking up my heels and dancing every day at my good fortune to have this job that was going to transform my existence because I just didn't think that way anymore. To me, every job was a job and I'm glad to have it and I'm going to do my best and then I go on my way because I've just heard this too many times and there was no way for me to know that that time it was actually true. You know, um, it gave me a, uh, uh, you know, worldwide recognition factor that I hadn't had before. Uh, 
I'm not sure everybody wants their life changed in that way. I mean, for me, I actually have found it very enjoyable, uh, but I also have had a very, very different attitude toward it as a guy who was already past 40 and had been doing this for more than 20 years, as opposed to back when I referred to when I was in my 20s and thought it was my due and was just being uh, uh, unjustly delayed. Um, At 40, when you walk down the street and people start to scream and women mob you and you walk into any bar anywhere and women stop what they're doing and run over to you and leave whoever they're talking to, women that you know would have treated you harshly if you had tried to speak to them two weeks earlier, uh, it's very clear what it's about. It's very clear that it's a very interesting, novel, and enjoyable toy to play with, but it has nothing to do with with my worth or value. It's not something that I earned all of a sudden but didn't earn prior. It's not something that was due to me earlier that was unjustly delayed. It's just a light switch that can get flipped on. And if it gets flipped on and it's pleasant, then it's uh, a great, wonderful thing to have. Um, and if it's unpleasant and it's unpleasant people drawn toward you, then it's not. I want to ask you now about Californication because I love that show. And so many people I do, I was living out in L.A. when that was on. And I remember I used to go down to the one bar in Burbank and they had Sunday night special. And I'd do a few shots at the kill and then go home and watch it. And, and I would watch it on the East Coast time. You know, because it was easier. You said when you read with David, was that uh, you improv and stuff like that? Was that your first audition for that show? Or did you have to go through a process to get in the room with David? Uh, I, you know, I, there, there are, everything's changed since then still because of video stuff. And many directors don't even meet actors anymore. It's just all put yourself on tape, send it in. And I mean, I, I would think people want to meet you face to face because... Everybody wants to know if they want to live together for several weeks or several months or several years. Um, so, uh, but for Californication, you know, I no longer have to do pre-screens with casting directors. So uh, I probably, I don't have a clear memory, but probably I went and I read for Tom Kapanos, Um And I think I did once. And, and that was enough to then uh, uh, get offered what's called a test deal. A test deal is, is ubiquitous in the entertainment industry. I, I happen to think they're probably, if anybody wanted to ruin their career and push it and examine it, I think they're probably inherently illegal because what they require is with, with, for no payment, you have to sign a contract that hires you to do a pilot that gives them the option to continue to use your services for six or so seasons, each season at their option. But once you sign and before you go in that room to do the final test audition, for the network executives, what you're signing is that they have the exclusive right to pick up that option. You can't go and apply to any other employers in the meantime. So whether that, and that clause is negotiable, whether it's 24 hours or three days or a week or two weeks, however long that hold is. So, you know, you're signing something saying that for a week while they decide, I can't go and audition for any other pilot. So in other words, they're removing for themselves the need to ever have to bid for your services against other people, unless you're somebody that draws multiple offers automatically. So, um, anyway, that's a sidetrack. I, I did my readings for Tom Kapanos. They probably immediately offered a test deal. Means everything's pre-negotiated. Your fee for the for the for the pilot, what your fee will be for the first season, and then predetermined percentage bumps for each thereafter season. And then, and that's how you go to these 
what they call tests. They, they're called tests because they used to be screen tests, you know, where you'd go with a camera crew and they'd see how you looked on film. None of it is screen tests anymore because they've already seen you on video. They could just as easily do it on video, but you go, you go into a conference room typically. And, and literally you're sitting at a conference table and the, the suited executives are around and the casting director and whoever else, the producers, the writer, and you, you do your thing. And yeah, it was me and David. And, and I think it was a three page scene. Maybe there were two scenes. I don't remember, but I sure do remember. Uh, and I also know that, you know, at the time, at the time that the pilot, the, the, in the pilot, what happened was Charlie Runkle was his agent and, and was a guy who came out as gay and re revealed this over the course of the story to his friend and, and, and whatever the ramifications of that were or weren't. Uh, so um, knowing that, you know, there was a slight bit of material, but, but David and I wound up doing, because David didn't say what was on the page, you know, half the time. He, he, wasn't, he didn't have pages in front of him. He just, he just kind of said what he, he felt like saying, some of which was on my page. Uh, but, you know, so I tried and I worked in a whole thing of like, you know, um, uh, I don't know, we kind of, it was like this teasing, bickering uh, uh, references to sadomasochism and giving each other spankings and, and, and it was just very funny and weird and touching and, and, they, and, 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 and I mean, David claimed this is what got me the job. I, I like to dispute that because I, I, I don't think it could be just a line, but he said, listen, I was there, but it, it included I think the big the, the the big thing that made Tom laugh when I first read for it was that thing was I have an offer for you that I screamed at the top of my lungs uh, uh, that people now shout at me on the street uh, and and he loved that so then then when we you know it used to be you just go and do the test but now they have work sessions before the test so you go and you rehearse with the producers to present what you're going to present to the network and I and I read that line a different way I just said I have an offer for you and they said, no 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 no. You have to scream it. You have to scream it like you did before. It's like, okay, I just thought you're not going to want to see the same thing every time. I mean, I, I'm, I'm, trying to, I'm trying to get the job. You, you already saw me do it that way once. I thought I would do it another way. No, no, do, do it the same way. So I screamed the, you know, I have an awesome radio. And, uh, uh, you know, have David do company on your show, and he'll tell you that's why I haven't even got the job. Now, how did that show change your life? Because, you know, it's one of those things where you're a guy whacking off. You know, I mean, it's like, it's not like the things that people sit there remember, you know, then, I mean, how do people, how would people, when you start, that show started getting uh, years in, how would people approach you? I mean, would, I mean, you must have been called Runkle so much walking down the street. I mean, how did that change you? And was it a really fun set? Uh, Californication was great. It was just like the perfect, perfect, beautiful, wonderful fantasy job for me. Um, it became very successful. Not, I don't think, I don't think on the scale of Sex and the City, but you know, Sex and the City, as I said, I came in six years into their seven-year existence, so I was, I was, I was a newcomer and a visitor in a well-established uh, 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 society, um, and even made some missteps upon entry, as I as I described. Californication, you know, it, it, we were all we were all the originators. We were there together, so we 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 shot the pilot for a week. It's the week my daughter was born. My daughter was born, I think, three days before we started shooting the pilot. Um, I remember after wrapping our week of shooting, David and I standing outside one of the trailers and saying, well, that was 
like a lot of fun, but where, where do you take it from here? I mean, what can you, what can you even do with this story? I mean, how many times can you, can, can the guy get laid? What, you know, how many drugs can you do? Uh, and we said that at the end of every season <laughs> for seven of them. Um, but it was great, you know, and, and just, you know, working with and for Tom, you know, the scripts were funny to me. I liked it. I loved it. And, you know, came with, you know, at, I'm, I'm careful because I think I, you know, I, I, I may have insulted Tom at some point early on by saying we, we, we improvise scenes because we didn't improvise scenes. The scenes in the scripts are all written. We, we had license to ad lib here and there. Um, and, and David would do it very, very casually, at, often at the table read, which in my life before that had been verboten, you know, you don't, because the table read is also when the writers are showing the draft to the network to get their notes and they don't want to get notes on your ad lib. They want to get notes on what they wrote. Um, but David would just very casually like get, you know, huge laughs by making little tweaks and things. Um, so I did some of that, but I, but I would, I would often go to Tom for permission, you know, cause I, I just would say, Tom, what, what if I did this? What if I did that? And it really became, you know, do whatever you want to do. As long as you get it once my way, do whatever you want to do. And to be cut loose and be free like that. And, you know, I would say 50, 50, 50, 50 percent of the stuff that I did was in the show and 50 percent of the stuff that I did wasn't. But it's a great feeling to feel like you can, you know, be an actor and a comedian and be inventing some of the stuff within the script that somebody else has written. And there was just great freedom and great license. I, I spent I spent decades of my career. I mean, really decades being told no. No, don't do that. Don't do that. Don't do that. The, the, you know, there's a lot of fear. There's a lot of you know, e, e, especially on film and television sets, especially television sets, I guess, because um, the directors are just for hire per episode as well. You know, nobody has security, so they're very terrified of being seen as the person that approved anything that somebody above them doesn't like. Um, and I, I thought like so much of the stuff, the best stuff that I could contribute was was negated, you know, was, was declined. Um, so to be in an atmosphere where it was welcomed and where somebody really appreciated what you brought to it was great and freeing. And, and on any television show, you, you see one script, you have no idea. I have no idea where that show is going or what it's going to be. And in the pilot, I didn't have any hijinks. I wasn't even in the pilot all that much. It just introduced me and the wife. Um, and I got to say, I have an offer for you in a funny, uh, way. Um, you know, then it became the story with the secretary and the, the, the spankings and, 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 and then, you know, then I, this, there was a script where, uh, you know, suddenly at 2 a.m. I was left alone with the crew to do this masturbation montage for the, for the, for the security cameras of Charlie Runkle being revealed as the guy who stays late at night in his, in his office and watches porn and jerks off and, and loses his job as a result. But I had never been called upon to do anything like that and, and, and had to really push through a tremendous amount of inhibition. And that's what those seven years were, really. But it was, I mean, it did more for me as an actor. I mean, really, I see Californication, I'm, I'm sorry, it's not more widely seen in the industry. Uh, because uh, to me, that was my proving ground as an actor, you know, of, you know, you t I'll do anything. I'll go anywhere, I'll do anything. And I, I thought, you know, did it quite winningly uh, uh, playing this guy who, who, you know, gets himself into one humiliating sexual uh, situation after another 
Um, I mean, my joke is that it's you know it was it was it was David's show. David was the lead, but David would sort of do one nude sex scene at the beginning of each season, and then it was kind of you know Charlie Runkle and his humiliations for the rest of the season. So so uh, uh, there's no doubt that I was nude and and doing more sex than David on the show. I think there's an argument to be made that it's probably more more nudity and more fictional comedic orgasms than anyone else in the history of television. Californication ended. Were you very depressed because you know it was it was a great experience for you? I mean, now did Showtime decide not to come back, or did you guys decide not to come back? No, Showtime decided it had enough. I I I I couldn't disagree with that. Seven seasons was more than I ever thought it could. I was ready to leave it. Um, it's uh, uh, I mean, nobody likes to give up uh, guaranteed income, although it was never guaranteed until they picked it up each season. You didn't know you had it until the spring when they said, okay, we'll go to work this summer again. 
Um, but to hear that it's not going to happen again, it's disappointing, but it was no tragedy. I mean, I remember very clearly, you know, Bob Greenblatt was the head of Showtime when we started, but David Nevins took over a couple of seasons in. And at our at our rap party after the seventh season, when it was well known that we had just shot our last episode, I remember David Nevins' wife coming up to me and saying, oh, Evan, I'm so sorry. And I was like, what are you talking about? I mean, this is just a party. We, we had... We, we did this for seven seasons. This is there's no there's nothing there's, this is there's no more there's no mournfulness here. This isn't uh, uh, this isn't awake. This is just a celebration of an incredible run. Um, uh, you know, I would have had I would have rather had more overt offers and offers of shows built around me as the centerpiece follow. Uh, but that. You know, I mean, I, I, I've gone back to what I was, which is a, a known uh, working actor who gets offered things here and there and auditions for other things, and some of them come through and some of them don't. Uh, uh, I said at the beginning that I thought I was an undervalued commodity in the entertainment industry. I, I still think I'm an undervalued commodity, but I get to do a lot of great stuff. Well, that's awesome, man. You know, I want to thank you. I, I, I said I'm a big fan. I was like, when you, when we decided to do it. I appreciate it. Thank you. I always sit there and my wife, well, we're married now. I wasn't dating her when Sex and the City was on. She, when I tell her, oh, she's on, she loves you too. And um, so what do you, what do you, you know, you said you, you, you did an audition on tape. Will you, will it come to a time if you get that offer? Will you sit there and if you have to, will you have to feel mentally that it's okay and physically to go back on the set? I mean, or what's what's your what's your thought about getting back to work? Now you're talking about yes. in terms of COVID. Is that yes. what you're asking? Yeah. Uh, I will feel uh, extremely vulnerable and 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 uh, uh, reluctant and skeptical and and uh, uh, you know don't don't know when I will or won't do that. I mean, so far it hasn't. Well, it was, it was so far it was an issue for one day in Venice, Italy, and and I turned that one down. Um, I, I don't know what will come about or how it'll be handled. Um, uh, uh, I won't be surprised if significant portions of the industry are not able to resume consistently for quite a while to come. I think, I think the United States as a, as a society has to come to terms with, uh, uh, reducing the presence of the virus tremendously before the, the film and, and, and television industry are going to be able to operate the way they want to and need to, even though they're getting back up and going now. Well, that's awesome. I would, I would talk about the election, but, you know, this won't air for two weeks, so we'll already know that Biden won by then. And I love it because everyone always gives, I'm 10 minutes from Philadelphia, everybody gives Philadelphia a hard time, gives me a hard time on Facebook because the Eagles booed, Eagles fans booed Santa, but it looks like Pennsylvania's going to take him over the top. So I said, everyone has to be nice to Philly people from now on, if that's what happens. So anyway, I know you tweet a lot, and it's, is it at Evan Handler? Now, what what is your reactions to your tweets? Because you're very political. Do people get pissed at you because they they think of you as a certain character, or I mean, because people just are mean. On I mean, have you run into anyone being mean to you? Because we know that the Trump supporters can be very mean on Twitter. What is your experience? Because oh, yeah. you tweet a lot. Yeah, I tweet a lot, but I mean, I've been very political the last four years because you know what what this what's been imposed upon the society is grotesque. And, but it, it's been imposed at the request of 50% of the society. So, uh, you know, it's a sick nation. It's a sick nation.
fiction existing in a, in a, in a, in a fantasy world of, of, uh, uh, in a fascist fantasy world. You know, I was never one of those who said, you can't call these people Nazis. Um, because Nazis, you know, that analogy to me doesn't mean you're murdering six million people in concentration camps. It means people blindly following a leader uh, in pursuit of a fantasy uh, society in existence that does not actually exist and freely committing atrocities and cruelty in the name of this false fantasy. You know, that's a Nazi analogy to me. So, uh, yeah, I've been extremely vocal and, and unabashedly so um, in the last four years because I think it's been necessary to insist in the face of the 50% of the population insisting reality is A and say, no, actually it's not. Reality is B, no matter how many people believe like you, you're all wrong. Uh, and that doesn't just mean how popular is he. It means that uh, there weren't that many people at the inauguration. Uh, it is cruel to separate children from their parents, and it is a crime against humanity. Uh, uh, the laws actually do allow people to come here seeking asylum until you change those laws through proper channels. Uh, and, you know, just down, down, down the list. And the, the, the press is not the enemy of the people. The fourth estate is actually what has traditionally protected the people from government and should continue to. And uh, uh, Democrats and liberals uh, uh, are not holding uh, children as sex slaves inside pizza places that don't even have basements. So, you know, fuck all that. I, I'm, I'm, I'm going to vocally not participate with, by, by, by either, you know, nodding my head or being silent. Um, and so, I mean, I, I, I direct my tweets at MAGA and whoever else. I mean, I, I, I cultivate their responses and then I either say a few things back or I block them. Right. That's all. Well, that's... I mean, I mean, I don't, I don't feel I need to travel and understand them because I, it's not understandable to me. It's not understandable other than in terms of look what happened in Europe in the 1930s, and and yes, people will follow this stuff blindly. People will either believe it, believe these ridiculous conspiracy theories, or use belief in those theories as an excuse to release their most vile. Uh, hatreds and angers, or even mis uh, undirected angers toward whoever they feel like, and and I, I just I won't participate with that. Well, that's very good, and I'm glad, and I'm glad you're a voice, and people go and follow <laughs> at Evan Handler because he is a voice, and you can see what he's thought about. Also, go to IMDb. I'm going to tell you, people, if you haven't watched Californication yet, you got to. He crushes it. Just go down. I always tell people, go down. And he's one of these guys, he's been on long shows. So a lot of, I talked to a lot of characters who have like 120 credits. But you've been on his show for seven years and then this year's. So you basically, it's people, it's easier to watch all his work and you can binge it. So go follow him on Twitter at Evan Handler. Follow me at Cooper Talk on Twitter at CooperTalk1 on Instagram. Go to my website, coopertalk.net. You can find over 800 episodes there. Email me, cooper at coopertalk.net. I'll get back to you. Remember, I'm Steve Cooper. I'm only as hip as my guests. Don't forget, drink your water, eat your vegetables, take your vitamins, and I'll talk to you guys next time.